Great news, guys. We have partnered with the good folks over at moonwalker.com. And Moonwalker is one of our favorite CBD companies that offer a wide variety of products. Those include Delta 8, CBD, HHC, CBN, CBG, and many, many more. Moonwalker has become the industry leader in Delta 8 and CBD products, pushing the boundaries of what is truly possible with hemp. By combining award-winning terpenes and natural flavors in unique custom blends, they explore new dimensions of taste, balance, and euphoria for all cannabinoids. Moonwalker offers tincture, gummies, vape cartridges, disposal vapes, and much, much more. I personally take the full-spectrum CBD at 750 milligrams of CBD and have completely left my anxiety prescription in the cabinet. Anyone who listens to our show knows that we are teachers during the day and would not endorse something that would put us or our listeners in jeopardy when it comes to testing. If you are interested in supporting us, and this great company, head over to moonwalker.com and use affiliate code MBRUISE. That is M-O-O-N-W-L-K-R.com, and the affiliate code is M-B-R-E-W-S. If you have any questions or concerns about the legality of CBD, Delta 8, or any of Moonwalker's other products, please visit moonwalker.com backslash pages backslash legal. Enjoy the ride. From July 1991 to May 1995, 26 victims are going to be found very close to the vicinity of New Orleans, Louisiana. Though he's one of the most prolific serial killers in American history, he has never been caught. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of the Storyville Slayer. Somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. So, Coach, how you been? I'm tired, man. I got insomnia pretty bad. And I haven't slept in like four days. So if I'm on not on my A game today. Coach, it's okay. We'll give you a kitchen pass. So I've been trying to cut. Alcohol makes me sleep like a charm. But I'm trying to, you know, cut back on it a little. Understood, understood. Well, we had uh, some people reach out about some cases, just so everybody out there that has sent in the new recommendations or your recommendations, and we forgot about them. Just to let you know, I've got some. I'm going to actually put a whiteboard together so that I do not lose track of them this time. And But uh, the newest one is from our home state of Georgia, and that is from... Miss Priscilla Tatum asked us to do a uh, episode on Tara Baker from Athens, Georgia. She was heard of. Uh, it's unsolved, and it occurred. Murder occurred in two thousand one. So Tara, Tara Baker. I'm looking it up right now. We're gonna do it. We change this. Uh, we're gonna change topics right on the fly. <laughs> Off the cuff, right here. 
that was it true crime garage calls off the record i don't know what we'd call it yeah around the, around the campfire Ooh, that's not bad and that's that would be uh, that would be a patreon situation where maybe that you know we just free base it <laughs> she was in college uh, Natalie Walker reached back out. She wants us to do the murder of Bob Crane. And she says, while it says it's solved, it's really not. It is not solved. That is true. And then she also had another one fraternal twins missing since 1990. They were 15 when they vanished the disappearance of Danette and Jeanette Millbrook. I think I've heard of that one. You're together. I believe so. Oh, we might have to do that one. Seriously. Uh, all of you out there, I have spent the last two weeks getting my home office rearranged so uh hopefully look nice but all i can see is your mysterious bruise background i know it's sexy i know it is pretty sexy we're gonna start i think once i figure out how to do the video side of it i think we can do we can record an audio and the video at the same time we're gonna try that get our beautiful mugs out there God, they get to see what I look like. I have to start fixing my hair, not wear underwear and stuff. Well, you just don't have to stand up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wear something other than underwear. I was going to say, I've taught for two years virtually. You just wear a three-button shirt, man. (laughs) (laughs) Free balling. (laughs) Uh, I saw a thing, speaking not of free balling, but uh, three-button shirts. One of the guys from Shark Tank does a lot of uh, interviews, I guess, in his uh, home city on yeah. a, a newscast and they show him no no lie he's got on like hawaiian print shorts and then he's got like shirt tie and coat <laughs> my man let me tell you we should probably go ahead and get started because we got 26 victims to cover and the last time we did a louisiana was the jennings eight it was our longest episode to date so yeah and that was a, that one was tough but that one no longer exists out there in radio land because the audio was such crap so was pretty bad and the episode episode was bad so it's just that's a difficult case that uh double flammy that was back when we got well that's back when we were young greenhorns there were some episodes you shouldn't listen to because we got way too intoxicated (laughs) let's say about the glitter I thought and then turn it down to high speed there was one it was like on an airplane I don't even remember recording. I was like, did we record? And you're like, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that one. Because me and the previous Mrs. Coach. Uh, yeah. We, she broke the chair. <laughs> well, she broke the chair, but we also, she broke the chair after we left, but she stepped in and we, me and her did that episode. And you were like, I'm listening to this for the first time. And I'm like, but you talked in it. <laughs> but she anyway. broke the chair in front of you. You seen it. Well, I saw it. But anyway. So here we go. We will begin this lovely, lovely episode from the mysterious city of New Orleans, and specifically the French Quarter. So on August the 4th of 1991 in Algiers, just across the Mississippi River from the French Quarter, a man out collecting recycling saw from a distance something peculiar on Nevada Street. Now, Nevada Street is a deserted street infamous for illegal garbage dumping, and the way if you pull it up on Google Maps, it's basically just a dead-end alley is the way it looked. I know in Mysteri- uh, Mysterious, good God, in Unsolved Mysteries episode, they show the man walking down like a country road, and that's not the case. Um, this is literally just blocks well, away. On the Unsolved Mysteries, if you want to Google it on the YouTube, 
type in the New Orleans serial yes, killer. Yes, yeah. You will not find it. Under Storyville, yeah. Storyville. That was one thing. That's what's crazy. Unsolved Mysteries calls it that. And the web, if you try to research any of this, you have to do Storyville. And then here's the sad thing about it. There's not a whole out there, a lot out there about the victim. He begins in 1991. The episode was filmed in 1992, but didn't play till 1993. He was active till 1995, so you're not going to get all the victims. Sorry. No. You get the first eight, but that's another thing that's kind of con- contentious is they think this is the work of multiple serial killers, the first eight, and then another block of them, and then the last couple of... Uh, victims are rumored to be a third one but i don't know i mean they got pretty much the same mo so that's true that's one thing that leads to one person maybe he's a copycat that's been known to happen true 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 so there was a man and like i said he was collecting recycling so he moves some garbage out of the way and he discovers a body of a young woman authorities would identify her as 17 year old danielle Britton, who lived in gretno with her mom. Now, Danielle had previously dropped out of high school and had no criminal record. She had been strangled and possibly raped approximately 12 hours earlier. At first glance, this murder seemed to be an isolated but tragic event. Now, while collecting cursory evidence in Danielle's murder, Detective Elizabeth... I'm so terrible. Why? Because I looked at a text message and all I heard was... But tragic. <laughs> I was like, what? This case just took a turn for the worse. They're like, what did I just miss? <laughs> Brain clicks. Uh, that's... Other things, and that was, however. <laughs> however. All right. So, Detective Elizabeth Wigington was approached by a man, and in the Unsolved Mysteries, this guy just walks through the police tape like he owns the place, but I'm pretty sure he was on the periphery. But anyway, he tells the detective that another woman had been attacked approximately two weeks earlier. Now, it's not clear whether or not this man was a patrol officer or if he was a business owner or whatever. But this lady was attacked just two weeks before Danielle's murder and... He was saying he thinks they may be connected, but the big difference is the first victim that he's talking about actually survived. And this, yeah, and like she basically gets drugged into a car, gets raped, gets beaten, and left for dead. She wakes up naked on the side of the road inside a bunch of trash on top of her, trash on top of her. God, yeah. that's miserable. Yeah, and now she had her voice. She goes by in the Unsolved Mysteries and then anything you read online, she goes by Brenda, and she had her voice permanently damaged due to the strangulation attempt. Uh, Police believe that she was attacked by the same man that killed Danielle, and when interviewed by Wigington, Brenda was able to recall the ordeal in very good detail. She stated that on July 22nd, 1991, she decided to go visit a friend. So she left her house, walked up Merrill Street, And as she was walking, she notices that a car starts following her. So the driver pulled up next to her and asked her if she wanted a ride. She declined, saying that she was just going a few blocks. The man persisted and continued to drive next to her as she continues to walk. 
he continues to insist on giving her a ride. Then he stops his car, gets out, and pulls her inside. He drives about a half a mile past her friend's house to Nevada Street, which is the same street Danielle's body was found on. And after he stops the car, he gets on top of her and begins to choke her. She realizes he was trying to kill her. She tries to fight him off, but was overpowered. And he strangled her with his bare hands, stripped off her clothes, and like you said, dumped her on the side of the road and covered her in trash. Here's the thing, and and I mean no disrespect when I say this. I guess my slight is towards the authorities and the press. How can you say that the first two were possibly raped? We're not talking about 61. We're talking about 91 when rape kits were available. Either you know or you don't know. Now, with Brenda, she may not have gone to the hospital for an exam. But I just have a hard time believing that they're stating they were possibly raped. I mean, either they are or they're not. Or if they are, they have biological and they're trying to keep that close to the vest. But still, at the same time... Why I put that out there? Just my little soapbox. I'll kick it out of the way now. <laughs> Looking at, Bre- well, dealing with Brenda, it seems like that was his, fir- she was truly his first victim. And so when she passed out, he thought he had killed her. And anybody that dabbles in true crime, listening to stuff, you know, there's been a lot of studies out there that it takes a ton of force and pressure to manually, with your bare hands, strangle and kill someone. What do you know about pressure? (laughs) So six hours later, just after dawn, Brenda awakens to find herself covered. Keep talking until you stop. (laughs) I said, did you get that reference? Yes, I got it, coach. I got it. What was it from? I'm not telling you now. I'm trying to get through this. You said we had 27 victims, and I got to go quick. You don't have to be a dick about it. Tell me the the freaking the movie. I can't remember the name of the movie, but I remember the line. Ace Ventura. Oh, that's right. That's right. What do you know about? (laughs) Is that as it falls out from the tuck job? No, she's talking about the field goal. That's what I'm talking about. Doesn't isn't that when she says that? It's when he's like, "Well, I have kissed a man," (laughs) and then. That Dan Marino should die of gonorrhea. Right. Would you like a cookie, son? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sorry. You're going to go have to go back a little bit. That's fine. I will. So six hours later, just after dawn, Brenda wakes up to find herself co- covered with garbage and old tires. Now, Detective Wigington felt that this was a huge break in Danielle's case because they had a live victim who could identify her attacker. And they felt very strongly that this was the same attacker who was responsible for Danielle's murder. What alarmed the detective was the man was still out there probably stalking his next victim, intending to kill them. As hard as Detective Wigington tried to identify the unsub, she was unable to come up with a suspect. The next victim would be Tierra Tassin, 21, and she was found murdered in Harvey, Louisiana on September 3rd, 1991. Now, these little town names, they're within... I think I started Googling them and then got sidetracked. I want to say that the first eight are all within roughly eight miles of each other. Damn. Hey, I ain't slept, so I'm kind of loopy and crazy, but I meant to say it before we started. 
we found out today, you'll hear it later, but today, what day, what's today's day? On Wednesday, June 1st, we found out it cost $15 million to shit the bed. <laughs> That's right. We did. <laughs> the turd has been flushed. Man. That's a valuable turd. Dude, told you got me on a tangent now, but here's what kills me about the whole thing. She tried to pull the old feminist card right there. I just hope this doesn't discourage people. I just guess I lost my First Amendment freedom. Yeah, you abused the shit out of the man. You punched him in the face. And for those of you that think she's telling the truth, go look up pictures of the Tesla owner, Elon Musk, when she dated him. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop interrupting you. You're lying. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm at least try. There you go. So, Tierra Tessens found uh, in Harvey, Louisiana on September 3rd, 1991. Now, Harvey is just five miles from Nevada Street where Danielle's body was discovered. Now, there's not much known about Tierra other than she was the mother to three very young children. Her body was identified from fingerprint records that were on file from a previous drug arrest. Just over two weeks later, on September 21st, 1991, the body of 28-year-old Charlene Price would be found in Berman Park, just one mile from Danielle's body on Nevada Street. Charlene had been beaten and strangled, and it was unknown if she was a prostitute, but family members told police that she did have a history of drug abuse. Now, four weeks later... Uh, the killer would strike again on November 21st, 1991. The body of 37-year-old Regina Oka of Algiers was found near St. Joseph Street in Harvey. The mother of three had multiple arrests for prostitution, according to her record. And when they conducted the autopsy, it was found that she had been strangled. And prior to her death, she had taken a large dose of cocaine, which would have caused an overdose. So we're looking at roughly about... Three weeks later, on December 14th, 1991, skeletal remains are found in a ditch in Algiers near the Berman uh, Highway. The autopsy established the remains belonged to a young black girl who at the time of her death was in her 20s and approximately 5'2", 125 pounds. The young lady had a defining characteristic which was strongly protruding front teeth. Her cause of death was listed as strangulation. Now, Berman Highway runs perpendicular to Nevada Street. Now, two and a half weeks would pass, and on January 4th of 1992, the killer strikes again. This time, the nude body of 29-year-old Lydia Madison was found beneath the South Claiborne Avenue overpass near Earhart Boulevard. This dump site was just eight blocks from police headquarters and 400 yards from the Superdome. Forensics indicated that the cause of death was Death was most, most, Mike Tyson's going to do this episode, was most likely strangulation. Madison, like some of the other victims, had been arrested previously on drug and prostitution charges. Now, the killer would strike once a month, roughly, always strangling his victims, always leaving them nude, face down, in or near illegal dump site. A lot of them was the same place. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, you could take a baseball and throw it to the next victim. If they would have just staked out that place, the guy had a pattern. That's what I, mean, I don't understand, man. This is put a, put a car out there, or multiple, or undercovers, or I mean, you're yeah, looking. Dress a guy with Bigfoot, and have him sit out there. <laughs> I'm sure you could dress up like anything if you're close to strange, New Orleans. Girl. 
he would be strangling her and being like, holy shit, that's Big, Bigfoot. Look, look. In, in the French Quarter. Look, it's right there. <laughs> now, all of the victims were poor black women from New Orleans with slim to medium builds. And according to Detective Wingington, they led difficult lives. And I think that's the most descriptive way of talking about this kind of victim. They were in a situation where most of them were trying to provide for their children at home, and unfortunately, they had to turn to prostitution, which ultimately led them into a life of drugs. And they were leading difficult lives, and they were very in vulnerable positions, and they are at a greater risk of becoming statistics of murders and rapes. Now, Brenda is still afraid that the man will come back and kill her. She does not walk the streets anymore. She does not go anywhere unless it is to church or the store. And if she does go somewhere, her mother or someone else will accompany her. If she is at home, she keeps her doors locked unless someone is there with her. She is afraid because she does not know where the unsub is, but she knows that he knows very well where she lives and what she looks like. And he also knows that she could recognize him. She feels that she is living in fear every minute of the day. Now, some people theorize that the killer stopped due to moving out of the area or being incarcerated. Others believe that another killer started hunting the New Orleans area. While another theory is that the killer laid low due to a composite sketch being released. Now, according to detectives, the next murder occurred on June 2nd of 1992. And that was... George Williams, who was 25, of New Orleans, and he was found floating in the LaBranche wetlands. His cause of death is listed as asphyxiation by strangling or smothering. Now, Williams was reportedly a transvestite who worked as an exotic dancer in the French Quarter. Authorities said he had prior arrest for drugs and burglary. Now, three weeks would pass before the killer would strike again, and on July 25, 1992, authorities found the body of 33-year-old Noah Filson floating naked in a canal off Interstate 55 just north of Laplace. An exotic dancer in the French Quarter, Filson reportedly went by the name Brenda Bewitch. Oh, so he's, he's killing people that at the very least dress like women. Right, and I think that's... Might not he might not have known the difference. I think that's the case because I've ever told you, ever told you that when I, the one time I went to one in Seattle, you said there was some pretty men up there. There was like I'd say thirty of them in there, twenty five of them. You're like that's a dude right there. There were five of them that you would not know the difference. You would not know until it was too late. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I always go back to the hangover too. Yeah. The lady boy incident. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh man. Now, August was a cooling off period and saw no murders that fit the profile, but on September 21st, 1992, Regetta Martin, 29 of New Orleans, was found dead in a canal near an interstate in Boat. According to police, the mother of 3 had prior arrest for prostitution. Isn't that weird that they have cooling off periods? Like BTK took years off. And it was it was finally they realized after they caught him that it was around his children's birth, was it not? Uh yeah, maybe. I don't I couldn't tell you offhand. And I'm not gonna Google it, so Okay, we'll just go with that. 
listeners, you have a, you have a homework assignment. <laughs> Correlate BTK's killings to his children's birthdays. And I tried to do buy and torture and kill last week on the episode about the guy from Indiana. We also had some uh, feedback on him. A lot of people from Indiana listened, and they were unaware of that case too. Oh, that's awesome! I actually I like that that they're not not aware of it. Back to our lovely, lovely Storyville Slayer. In mid-October of 92, Brenda, the surviving victim, stated that she spotted the same man that tried to kill her in a grocery store parking lot in Algiers. When the killer saw Brenda and realized she recognized him, he fled the, fled the area on foot. For her, I think it kind of cements that I should never leave the house terrifying moment. Uh, for him... I can't believe that he just turned and ran. I mean, I'm not saying that he would have attacked her, but I would have, I would figure he would have tried to play it off more than just turning and fleeing the scene. But again, I don't kill people, so I don't know how I would react. So we are up to February 20th, 1993, and the body of 30-year-old Cheryl Lewis of Bridge City was found in a canal along Louisiana 3160 State Highway in Honville, her cause of death is listed as strangulation. Now, Lewis was the mother to four children, and she did have a history of drugs and prostitution. She was last seen alive four weeks before her body was found, and witnesses told police they saw a man drag her into a car and drive off. Now, I could not substantiate that claim. Everything that I saw, we will actually get to in a little bit. But if that's the case, if people witness that, that's got to be terrifying, especially in the knowing there's a serial killer out there on the loose. Just one day later, Dolores Mack, 42, was found dead in a canal along the same Louisiana State Highway 3160. The location is only 782 feet north of where Cheryl Lewis's body was found the previous day. Dolores was a transsexual from Metairie, used to go by Benjamin Mack. Her cause of death is listed as strangulation. Mack had one prior arrest for a crime against nature, according to police. You got to pause when I talk, man. I didn't hear you, man. This thing's cutting out tonight. Like, Well, I'm saying maybe he could tell the difference because it seems like he's killing an awful lot of transvestites. I think Grand told her there's five, but I think they come back to back to, you know, they're, they're kind of in succession. I got you. I tried to do Bridge City and Hanville, and this one is where I think this is about the time they start shifting to the actual close town of Storyville. And Storyville has its own history of being a red light district way back. So anyway, a little history lesson there for you. That's the first eight victims. So seven of those eight women were found within a three-mile radius, all but one on the west bank of the Mississippi River. Now, the killer struck once a month, always strangling his victims, always leaving them nude face down in or near illegal dump sites. Like I said previously, all the victims were poor black women from New Orleans with slim to medium builds. Now, the New Orleans serial killer has been described as a clean-cut, well-dressed black male between 5'8 and 5'10 with a muscular build. He was in his 30s in 1992. Authorities believe he is extremely knowledgeable about automobiles. Where that come from, I have no idea, but that one s- sentence is all over Reddit, 
web sleuths, uh, our obscure message board sitcoms online. It's, it's so weird that that is like a great resource for mysteries. <laughs> I know. Sit online. You wouldn't think so, but here we are. We've talked about it many a time. Many, many a time. You're looking at the guy last being seen in the New Orleans area in October of 92. Now, on the night that Danielle was murdered, she was seen with the suspect outside a bar called Neva's Rendezvous. He, the suspect, was driving a blue late model Buick Regal or Monte Carlo, and he had also been seen driving an older model brown Chevy Nova along with an undescribed green car. So we've got a huge cooling off period, and I think it's basically just short of a year because Dolores Mack was found February 21st of 1993. The next victim found was February 5th of 1994. And this was a partially clothed Jane Doe number two between the ages of 25 and 35. She was found dead in St. John, the Baptist parish. Autopsy reports show the woman had been raped and strangled. Now the next couple of, well, not next couple, the next list there's not a whole lot of information out there about these victims and i was telling coach before we started recording any pictures you find of these women they are copies (laughs) no they're not they are copies of copies of copies and it's hard to even have distinguishing you know features of is that really a person the one picture i saw so again not to slight anybody's daughter or mother, or anything like that. We just could not find any information starting with the victim list in February of 94. Uh, Five days later, on February 10th, 1994, the partially burned victim of Jane Doe number three was found. They estimate that she was between the ages of 15 and 17, and she was found near Airline Highway in Gramercy. Her cause of death was also listed as asphyxiation. Shit. Asphyxia shit. Asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. That's a terrible terrible way to go. That's terrible. Terrible. That's terrible. So between... (laughs) I'm doing a good job, buddy. Doing a good job. Who's the one that hadn't had to sleep? Me or you? Because you were killing it tonight. I'm getting too old to do manual labor, and my in-laws asked me to put out a couple of pallets of sad. Sad. See, I can't even talk now. Pallets, pallets, pallets of sad, pallets of sod, along with digging, digging, digging. <laughs> you snowballing now. <laughs> a ditch to hide a drainage pipe for the gutters. So yeah, my ass is dragging. Yeah, you're you're, you're snowballing now. Yeah, Don't it's it's get- just downhill now. I'm just gonna butcher everything. So five days later, February tenth. Uh, like I said, the victim they estimated was between 15 and 17. That's Jane Doe number three. Uh, February 13th, three days later, they find 25-year-old Stephanie Murray of Bridge City. And she's actually found dead in a small pond in the Bonet Car Spillway. February 15th, 1994, Jane Doe number four is found. And they estimate her age between 25 and 35. No details were available on Jane Doe number four. So you're looking at, in the span of roughly 10 days, they find four bodies, three of which are Jane Doe's. 
that's I mean, you talk about spiraling out of control, and then it would be almost six weeks before they find another body that they think either he's hiding them good or they're not looking well. See, and that's what I'm wondering. He's also picking people that are not going to be too quick to be reported missing. No, he's not. And that's the thing. There was the guy in Cleveland that murdered a bunch of those people and kept their bodies in his house, and they blamed the sausage factory across the street for the stench. I can't think of his name, but he was doing the same thing. He was preying on drug-addicted prostitutes that nobody would miss. That's sad, man. It is. It's super sad. And and I hope that we kind of convey the fact that you know, we don't feel like they're throwaway at all. That you know, that's somebody's mother, that's somebody's daughter. Um, Hell no! I mean, I, I don't think they're throwaways because of what they do. <laughs> they're providing a valuable service. Well, that and they all have kids, and I, I mean, we'll get to it in the closing thoughts. But I just had, I don't know. Anyway, moving along. On April second, nineteen ninety-four, two sets of skeletal remains were found in the canals, later determined to be a young woman and a young man. Now, due to extreme decomp, neither could be identified and are referred to as Jane Doe number five and John Doe number one. So on July 3rd, 1994, the body of 32-year-old Michelle Foster of New Orleans was found. She had been reported missing just a couple of days earlier. So it almost leads you to believe that that stint in February and April are previous kills that he did during his heyday, and they just stumbled across them either because of flooding in the wintertime or road work or whatever. I don't, A, I don't think they're looking very hard for victims, but I think he's doing a decent enough job hiding them that they stay hidden until decomp is way, way ahead of schedule. And then you're also talking about Louisiana. I mean, the humidity down there has got to ratchet it up by a power of 10. Like, you, the body would have to go quick. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So on June... Summertime, good God! The devil himself walks the streets of New Orleans, and during the summertime, <laughs> October nineteenth, ninety-four would be the next victim found, and it was a decomposed body of twenty-eight-year-old Stephanie Brown of New Orleans, and she was found in a wooded area off US ninety near Bridge City. Brown had no prior criminal record. Uh, we fast forward to January of 95, January 22nd to be exact, and you are looking at the next victim being Wanda Ford, 29, of New Orleans, and she was found dead in a swamp along Interstate 55 in Laplace. The mother of three allegedly had battled drug abuse and had prior arrests for theft and possession of stolen property. January 23rd, 1995, 39-year-old Sandra Warner of New Orleans was found dead in St. John the Baptist Parish. And two days later, the body of 24-year-old Henry Calvin of New Orleans was found in Gretna, and Calvin had been reported missing all the way back in November of 94. He had prior arrest for crimes against nature, people said. And that's the second victim that had crimes against nature, and they don't go into detail about what that is. And I've got a feeling that it's either killing stray cats, dogs, something along that kind of situation. That'll get you a crime against nature, but killing a prostitute won't? That's bullshit. I'm telling you, we got some fucked up shit when it comes to our justice system. 
That's a story for another day and a lot more beer. March 24th, 1995, police would find the skeletal remains of Jane Doe number six. They estimated her age between the age of 25 and 35. She was found beneath a highway overpass in Tagapoa. I butchered that one. Mm-hmm. You sure did. Parish. <laughs> <laughs> you got Parish right. I got Parish right. Now, on April 30th, 1995, I was but a wee lass of 20 years old. The bodies of 30-year-old Karen Ivester and 28-year-old Sharon Robinson were found along Interstate 55 near Laplace. Autopsies determined that Ivester had been strangled while Robinson had been beaten and strangled, but the presence of water in her lungs indicated that the cause of death had been drowning. May the 6th of 1995, the decomposed body of Sandra Williams, 39, of New Orleans was found dead along Crowder Boulevard. Autopsy records show she was strangled. Williams, who frequented the trim, had a prior arrest for, guess what, crimes against nature. Shouldn't they put you in jail for that for like forever? Now, I started researching this case a couple of weeks ago, and then we kind of had some things come up where we just, it kind of get kept getting pushed back. But when I first started researching this, I would go where I had the list of victims. And I think it's on Web Sleuths. The first post has the whole victim list. And so I would have it up on one monitor, and then I would be Googling each individual victim trying to see if I could find anything about their past or what they've done. There's nothing out there, A, but they also... There's nothing out there about what these previous charges are. Well, for the record, I started researching this the moment you asked me if I had my intro ready. (laughs) Did you not watch the Unsolved Mysteries? Yeah, I did do that. It was too short. It was too short, man. That uh, episode, the first segment was uh, quite interesting. I was enthralled in that. It's like... Did you dream the future? And it was like 30 minutes of the show. I know. I look, I keep looking at the, the video. And I'm like, well, we're almost done with the show. But anyway, so May 6th, 95 is Sandra Williams. Then we have in, I think just a couple of days prior to Sandra's body being found or just a day or two after her body was found, a task force was established by the New Orleans Police Department in conjunction with surrounding parishes and the FBI in order to solve the killings. In May of 95, the first victim was in 91. It takes y'all four fucking years to decide to get a task force together. I won't look into this. <laughs> yeah. I don't have... It's not like I'm going to move to Louisiana because... Oh, I'd love to live in New Orleans. Shit, I ain't no way. You couldn't pay me enough. I wouldn't make it a year. I was going to say I wouldn't make it six weeks. Somebody'd kill me. No, I'm saying I'd probably drink myself to death. Oh, well, those hurricanes will do that to you. Shit, damn right. (laughs) Canadian beer's like moonshine. Yeah, you're right. You're right. (laughs) Hell yeah. So, anyway, that's. I just. um, I was appalled at the fact that we didn't start a task force for almost four years. But anyway, so fast forward to April 8th, 1996, police find the skeletal remains of 39-year-old Lola Porter, who disappeared in 92 along South Keener Road in Wagaman. 
Detectives later interviewed her friends and relatives who stated that she had been sharing a house with a white male who vanished shortly after Porter went missing. Now, that may be an outlier that has no ties to the actual Storyville Slayer or the New Orleans serial killer because of that last thing. If she was sharing a house and that boy, she comes up missing and that boy skips town, my money's on him. And the description, the composite sketch is that of an African-American male. So kind of rules out her boyfriend if she is a victim of the serial killer. So in May of 95, like I stated, they start the task force. And then in March of 98, to be specific, the 22nd of March, authorities announced that they had lost the remains of both Jane Doe's whose bodies were found in Tagapoa Parish. How do you lose them? Oh, it gets what? better. Wouldn't you bury them in a potter's grave or something? Yeah. You just get them and then some dudes will be walking by evidence locker and be like, hey, man, I like that body right there. They said that those two bodies were found in February of 94. Jefferson Parish Chief Deputy Newell Normand said authorities exhumed over 110 bodies from a pauper's field where New Orleans sends its unidentified dead and were unable to locate either woman. The news was devastating to the family of Patience Jupiter, a New Orleans woman who vanished on January 28, 1994. According to her family, Jupiter bore a striking resemblance to one of the Jane Doe's. Authorities also said they suspected Jupiter was a Jane Doe, but will never know because they can't find her damn body. For reasons that are unclear, authorities failed to preserve even the dental evidence, which could have helped identify those two lost victims. I hate to say this. No, I don't. I don't hate to say this. I believe Louisiana may be more corrupt when it comes to law enforcement than Arkansas ever thought about being. Ooh, wow. I know. That's a big, mighty statement. Virtual statements right there. Yes, it is. And I know all of our Arkansas listeners are like, thank God. So we've got seven of the 27 bodies discovered between 91 and 95 in the New Orleans area were found in the St. John the Baptist Parish Sheriff's Office jurisdiction. Most of these victims, police said, were African-American women involved in drugs and prostitution. Five of the victims were men. However, four of the five were reportedly transgender. The majority of the victims' bodies were dumped in bayous or canals situated along highways bordering the western banks of Lake Pontchartrain. Now, Major C.J. Dester was the lead detective in the parish and stated to Huffington Post, quote, they were strung out all along the I-10, I-55, and I-310 corridor. Some were drowned. Some of them were suffocated. Now, because of the secluded locations, the victims tended to be in advanced states of decomposition by the time they were found, leaving evidence destroyed and some victims unidentified. Authorities would catch their greatest and first break and probably only break in or on April 30th of 1995 when fishermen walking below the elevated I-55 interstate in St. John Parish discovered a woman's nude body at about 11 after 8 in the morning. When officers arrived on the scene, they discovered a footprint from a woman's training shoe next to the body and a wad of chewing tobacco nearby. 
rigor mortis, which typically occurs within 12 hours after death, was still in its early stages, suggesting the victim had not been in that area very long. Quote, at the time, we had no trace of who she was, Dester said. We later found out that she was Karen Ivester, white female, 30 years of age, and the cause of death was asphyxia due to suffocation. You could see in the autopsy report, they made notes of some abrasions on her neck where she had been grabbed by someone and choked, end quote. So roughly three hours after Ivester's body is found, detectives are notified that another body has been discovered roughly one mile south of Ivester's. The body was face down in a shallow body of water next to an I-55 off-ramp. This victim was 28-year-old woman who was fully dressed, clad in a uniform from Harrah's New Orleans Hotel and Casino. She was wearing an identification badge that said her name was Sharon Robinson. Now, any ideas of these two murder victims being coincidental vanished when detectives discovered that Robinson was wearing women's training shoes with tread that matched the footprint found next to Ivester's body. Robinson's cause of death was listed as drowning. Police would go on to theorize her killer stood behind her and held her head underwater. It was also discovered that Ivester and Robinson were best friends. Damn. Yeah. It's a twisted son of a bitch right here now. He's got a dick. Complete. Uncircumcised at that. (laughs) (laughs) That caught me off guard. Um, That's why I'm laughing. I was not expecting to hear that. Uh, it's not often I can I can get you, but when I do, I enjoy myself. Now, police would head to the casino where Robinson was employed and begin asking questions. It is determined that Robinson had left work on April 29th of 1995 at 3 a.m., accompanied by Victor Grant, a 33-year-old officer who was her boyfriend. Yes, that is an officer of the New Orleans Police Department. So immediately finding out that she's dating a police officer and with the boyfriend or husband or spouse being the first person of interest, they start looking into Gant as a suspect. Now the FBI would announce that the man who actually killed Robinson and Ivester had also claimed 22 other victims. According to the FBI, 21 of the killer's victims had ties to prostitution. Ivester included 19 were known prostitutes, including one man. There were two other male victims. Yeah, I know that's hard to believe for people out there. You know, he's a gay man because I don't think a lot of women go to prostitutes. Well, those were the the transgender. So I got a feeling that well, New Orleans has a huge uh, problem with gay prostitution. Well, not gay, but I mean, I guess man on man. That's gay. That's, that's how well, according to the LGBTQ plus IS, everything's different now. So if you say gay, it may be, you may be something else. Happy Pride Month. True. True. I saw that. I also saw a, a PSA, which I think I, I would never have seen, but it is warning people. And it was actually written by a website that caters to the LGBTQ community and they were trying to tell them to inform their family 
that they don't need to bring children to many of the gay pride marches. No. I know that's a shocker. I mean, <laughs> they got to learn at some point. Mommy, why has that man got on pl- <laughs> two-foot platform shoes and all leather? Look, I, I don't I don't care if you're gay. It's fine. I don't. It's fine. There's some people out there that are very gay. And they will come out to those pride parades wearing a thong and angel wings and, and a cowboy hat. <laughs> and, a, and red go-go boots up to their crotch. Yep. But, I mean, take a kid if you want. Yeah. I mean, shit. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted to improve my gut health. I needed more energy. I wanted to optimize my immune system. And I despise taking vitamins so i've been on it for about five weeks and it's pretty good i it doesn't taste like a super healthy green smoothie it has a mild tropical taste that i actually look forward to you know it's it's very good it's 75 high quality vitamins and minerals whole food source superfoods probiotics and aptogens it helps start your day off right and It's a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, energy recovery, you name it. Now, I usually take it in the mornings and right after I have my coffee. And then I've noticed that my digestion has gotten more regulated. My energy levels are up. I would say the taste is more like a coconut, but some people say that it's more like a mango. But I've had my wife try it. She loves it. And I always make sure that I have it when I travel. It is lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, while still having a great taste. It supports better sleep quality and recovery, and it also supports mental clarity and alertness. It's the one thing with the best things. Athletic Greens use the best products based on the latest science with constant product iterations and third-party testing. The price is going to cost you less than $3 a day. And it's cheaper than getting all the different supplements yourself and you're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. Athletic Greens has over 7,000 five-star reviews. It's recommended by professional athletes. And Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recovery. It cost him $100 a day, so he created Athletic Greens after experiencing how difficult it was to create an optimal nutrition routine on your own. It is trusted by leading health experts such as Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais, and for every purchase, we donate to organizations helping to get nutritious foods to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the U.S. And in 2020, Athletic Greens donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. Right now is the time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash emerging. That's E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up 
the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Okay, so back to it. Um, <laughs> this is such a long case, and we've interrupted this. I have interrupted so many times. There's no way people are keeping up. Now we're done with the the uh, <laughs> the list of victims, but we're getting oh, okay. we are getting into the suspects. So, like I said. The New Orleans Police Department immediately named Victor Gann, a 33-year-old officer with their department, as a main suspect. The FBI doubles down and says, hey, whoever killed Robinson and Ivester also killed the other 22. According to the New Orleans Police Department sources, each body carried some distinctive mark that matched through all of the deaths. So around 10 p.m. on April 30th of 1995, it is discovered that Ivester left her apartment she shared with her boyfriend and two children to work the French Quarter. And yes, that means work the French Quarter. She didn't have a nine-to-five job. Roughly five hours later, Ivester was spotted standing outside the employee exit of Harris. Now, they theorized that Ivester was waiting on Robinson to get off work. The two had been spotted together in the weeks leading up to their murders, police had stated. So let's look at Victor Grant. Is it Grant or Gant? I think it's Victor Gant. Sorry, no, I do. Don't worry, just keep going. I apologize. Victor Gant. Now, Gant is a native of New Orleans and spent his childhood and youth in Algiers. He became a police officer in February of 1980, and while on patrol, he would spend a lot of his time in the red light districts of the surrounding towns of New Orleans, where in later years he acquired many acquaintances among the pimps, the prostitutes, and the street informants. In the early 90s, Gant gained a reputation for being corrupt after a number of informants reported that he, along with a few others, were running a racketeering operation against the pimps and other criminals in the area. It was revealed that during this time, he met Sharon Robinson, who soon became his roommate. On December 9th, 1994, Robinson went to the police to report Gant for beating her. And according to her statement, Gant punched her in the face and broke her nose. Now, of course, Gant says that she's lying and stated that he had only pushed her during an argument. And she fell and hit her nose on a chair. However, this is contradicted by her children who said that they were witnesses to him punching her in the face. This was also backed up by the emergency room doctor who testified that the woman's injuries were the result of a beating not falling into a static object. So in 1995, in the early months, a disciplinary panel and hearing to determine Gant's punishment began. During the hearing, members of the disciplinary committee reviewed the testimony of the prosecution's witnesses. The key witness was supposed to be Robinson, but she couldn't show up because she was no longer breathing. Yeah, that'll keep you from your appointments. Yep. According to officers involved with the investigation, Gant had a record of suspicious involvement with prostitutes. He used to patrol in Trame and Algiers, Several residents of those areas say a group of New Orleans police officers have operated a string of prostitutes in the area for years. Some say they have seen brutal beatings and threats of murder, and a few have claimed Gant was an associate of one suspect group which allegedly ruled that area through intimidation. B. 
Speaking anonymously, a woman told the independent newspaper, quote, the police and the politicians don't really care about us. It took over a dozen deaths before these motherfuckers lifted a finger to find the killer. I knew two of the three girls who died, but I wouldn't tell the police about it. I'd be the next one dead if I did. The woman then went on to say, quote, I saw the girl named Peach just a couple days before she was murdered. Thing is, some of the cops were running those girls around here. They were the pimps. Some people say Peach got out of line and they killed her, end quote. Now, Peach was the name used by Karen Ivester when she worked as a prostitute. According to FBI investigators, Gant had told some acquaintances that he disliked Ivester because she had persuaded her friend not to join her in prostitution. FBI agent John Fleming confirms that the New Orleans Police Department involvement in prostitution is an element in the case. Quote, a common thread in the victims was their membership of prostitution rings that seemed to have been connected with a group of New Orleans Police Department officers. Victor Gant has been associated with that group, end quote. So in order to determine whether or not Gant is guilty of killing Ivester and Robinson, he is ordered to submit DNA testing to see whether they could match any of the biologicals recovered at the scenes. It is also... Or I'm sorry, it's not also, but they were looking to see if they could f- match his DNA to that wad of chewing tobacco laying next to one of the victims. They get hair sample, blood, saliva, even pubic hair samples, and semen samples, I believe. He got the Quasimoto of all of it, but the results come back inconclusive to the wad of chewing tobacco. Since it was inconclusive, they couldn't file any charges against him, and he is ultimately dismissed from the New Orleans Police Department in August of 1996. Now, while still being a suspect in the murder cases of Ivester and Robinson for 20 years, Gant then was an officer with the Carver College Police Department, which serves a Christian school in Atlanta, GA. Two photos identifying Gant as an auxiliary officer and showing him in uniform were available on the department website. But when news spread that he was still the prime suspect in two unsolved murders, they took one of those pictures down. Now, Jill Perry, the records custodian for the Georgia Peace Officer Standards and Training Council, said that Gant is, quote, not a certified police officer in the state of Georgia, end quote. It's possible Gantt served Carver College as a volunteer, but when reached by the Huffington Post via telephone, the Carver College police chief, R.J. Collins, denied Gantt was ever a part of the department. Quote, you got your information mixed up, Collins said. When the journalist pressed him further, stating, I'm looking at two pictures of him in your uniform, he hangs up on him. In a follow-up call from HuffPost to Carver College President Robert Crumay, Crumay defends the police chief. Quote, nobody's done you harm. Nobody's broken a law. Nobody's committed a sin. People are just uncomfortable about talking to strangers, giving information on anybody that's not solicited through an authoritative source. I want to say this as politely as I can. You guys will have to track Gant down. End quote. Pressed further, 
Cremace said Gant is, quote, no longer at Carver, but declined to discuss it further. We are not obligated to give any information, end quote. When asked about the inconsistencies, Jeff Miller, director of the Certification and Training Division at the Georgia Peace Officer Standard and Training Council, said his agency is, quote, currently taking a look into the situation at Carver College. How can you sit there as a police chief and say, that man don't work for me, knowing damn well his picture, two, he has two pictures on your department's website. No, that ain't him. That ain't him, man. Maybe they hadn't updated it yet. You don't know. You're not your website expert. Hey, as what is it? Shaggy was me. I was thinking the cartoon Shaggy. I was like, what are you going to say? Zoinks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm about to spit my drink all over the computer. All right. So let's get into one of the odder situations in this. And I, not that it, wasn't odd to begin with, but we are talking about the Clay the Serial Killer call. On August 13th, 1997, the call screener for the Howard Stern Show tells Howard there was a listener on hold named Ed who claims to kill prostitutes. He slips up and calls himself Clay, Yeah, right? Well, no, it, he actually says... Um, Stern immediately puts him on air. The phone call starts out a bit rocky as Stern goes to the phone yelling, is this Ed, 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 Ed? And finally, there's a voice on another end that says, no, I never said my name was Ed, almost as if to say, how dare you get my name wrong? Then he goes on and says, you can call me, Clay. At one point, he starts to say his name and stops in the middle of it. I can't remember what it was exactly because it's been a long time since I listened to it, but yeah. Uh, and then stops. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, video, the actual clip of that's almost like twelve minutes long. I think, actually, I think it's seventeen. Oh, okay. Even I saw long. it. I didn't watch it. Imagine that. Now Howard then goes on and asks Clay how many prostitutes he's killed. I do love Howard Stern. Double booty. <laughs> Clay quickly and almost with a sense of pride callously answers twelve. Stern then launches into a lot of questions, asking Clay why he kills women, how he kills them, if he has sex with them, and much more. Now, you can initially tell that Howard and Robin aren't really taking this guy seriously. and They're still excited because that's going to be ratings right there. Right. You got a serial killer on the line. Well, and they also, that show during that time, 97, was also receiving a ton of insane calls from people claiming much, much weirder shit. So it's always been like that. It probably still is. Yeah, you're probably right. But this kind of changes. The tone of Robin and Howard change a couple of minutes into it. I think when they realize that this could be actually a man that does kill people, and they begin grilling Clay in a more careful situation in hopes of getting a few leads for authorities. Howard goes on to ask questions about Clay's motives behind why he kills, his methods of murder, even asking if he has any tattoos. But the caller was very cunning and careful to not incriminate himself. Hell yeah, I got an eagle on my neck. (laughs) Says, fuck the popo. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Allegedly, 
the day after this aired on B97 during the station's brief stint as a hot talk radio format, the FBI showed up at Stern Studios and collected the audio evidence. The biggest question is, could this actually be real or is this some peckerhead just trying to get his 15 minutes of fame? No, I think he did a pretty good job describing what he did. I mean, well, according to multiple reports, what grabbed the FBI's attention during the phone call on the Howard Stern show was the caller actually revealed information about murders the authorities say they never made public. They say some of the details that Clay talked about were things that only the killer would know. Clay, the serial killer, told the Howard Stern show that the New Orleans Police Department's main suspect in serial killings was a, quote, black police officer. The New Orleans Police Department never released that information to the public, but somehow Clay knew about it and he was right. And that's where Victor Gant came in. But we will actually put the link to this video on our socials so that you can judge for yourself whether you feel like this is a publicity stunt or if it is actually real. Now, the last suspect is Russell Elwood. Oh, Russell. One of Cleveland's finest. He is a native of Massillon, Ohio, and moved to New Orleans in 1968 after graduating high school. For the next 30 years, he lived in severe unpleasantness because of his drug addiction. He had no permanent residence. He never married, changed professions often, mostly sticking to photography and cab driving. Owing to his addiction, Elwood was arrested several times from 1968 to 1998. When not imprisoned, he spent most of his time among fellow vagrants, where acquaintances would describe him as an outsider who constantly sought to make get-rich-quick schemes, but consistently failed in his endeavors. Elwood did inherit $15,000 from his mother, but pissed it away trying to invest in penny stocks. Piss your money away. They're cheap. I don't know. That's what I was thinking when I read that. I was like, how many do you have to fuck up before you realize this shit ain't working? Well, they're probably buying tens of thousands of them. Well, then they're dumbasses because I was. Here's what my daddy used to say about these little. He used to go to Cherokee and gamble. He said there'd be these little sweet little old ladies at the nickel slots. And they'd be like, I don't have a problem. I'm just playing nickel slots. Like, hell, you're playing 200 nickels a roll. <laughs> yeah, honey, you got a problem. I don't care if you saved up for a year. You you got a problem. Yeah. All right, so Elwood first comes under police scrutiny in 1994 after he was allegedly found. Hold yourself, coach. I know you. I have bated breath. Okay, he's found, allegedly. I don't think this is alleged, but I'm putting it in there. Allegedly found masturbating in his car by police, which had been parked by the road near where Cheryl Lewis and Dolores Mack's bodies were found. A partially undressed Elwood was forced out of his car and told to show his driver's license. His explanation for stopping was to apparently change the oil and repair the brake pads of his car. And change it oil, all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and willingly allowed the officers to search his vehicles. 
Upon searching his vehicles, officers found none of the items that would require a man to fix brakes or change the oil, not even a flashlight, which would have been very necessary to perform such repairs in the dead of night on the side of a fucking road. Now, I guess jerking off in the middle of the night in your car near a murder scene on the anniversary of said murder is not a crime or misdemeanor. So the police let Spanky Fuck Knuckle just walk on down the road. <laughs> okay, that's going to my vocabulary. Next <laughs> time I in a rub. Go to the office, Spanky Fuck Knuckle. <laughs> oh, I just don't get it, man. I. You've got, you've got to be kidding me. You couldn't find nothing to bring that son of a bitch in. You found him jerking off next to the scene where the lady's body was found on the anniversary of her body being found. Yeah. They should have looked into that a little more. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I'm not an officer I, by any means. I'm not an expert. No. I just play one. <laughs> After the task force was formed to investigate the Storyville Slayer, Colonel Walter T. Gorman of the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office and other task force members traveled to Sebring, Florida, where Spanky was living on July 23rd, 1997, so that they could question him. He was at the time living with his elderly father. Now, he's informed of his rights, which... The officers state that he was very cooperative and they spent three days talking to him. He gave several statements. They recorded those statements on tape. During the interrogations, he admitted to frequenting black prostitutes throughout his life, claiming that he knew more than 100 girls. In addition to frequently taking drugs such as heroin, crack cocaine, and LSD over the years, the investigators became increasingly suspicious when Elwood started speaking about having a dream in which he was being questioned about a series of murders and later admitted to frequenting the locations where the bodies were found, but continued to reaffirm that he was innocent. I don't know about you, but A, I ain't talking to the damn police without a lawyer, but B, if I ever decided that I needed to, I sure as shit ain't telling them that I was on heroin, crack, LSD, knew a hundred prostitutes, you can't get me for the past. That was in the past. I killed her last. I mean, I did the heroin last year. My thing with that whole thing is, and then you're going, not only are you going to tell them that you've been doing all that, then you're going to tell them, man, I had a vision. <laughs> Y'all was here questioning me about dead prostitutes. Is there a sto- Is there a sign in my yard that says dead prostitute storage? No, no. there isn't. There isn't. You know uh, why? Because storing dead prostitutes ain't my business. <laughs> the only word, they put me in interrogation room. I don't give a damn what they ask me. They ask me my name. My name is lawyer. They ask me how old I am. I'm lawyer. They ask me what my favorite food is. My favorite food is lawyer. My thing with that is I might be like Austin Powers where he's like www.lawyer.com. <laughs> Do it in different accents. Do it in different languages. Whatever you need. Lawyer. (laughs) Counsel. (laughs) 
So on August 4th, 1997, just days after the interrogations were completed, Elwood was arrested for buying cocaine from an undercover popo at his home in Sebring. And he's probably like, look, man, I done told y'all I was doing this. As a result, he was convicted and sentenced to spend 85 days in the county jail. According to his cellmates, Elwood implicated himself in the prostitute killings back in New Orleans and its various suburbs. One of them, informants that is, named Stanley Hill, contacted the county prosecutor's office and claimed that Elwood had described to him in detail how he had driven the women to outlying areas of the city, offering them large quantities of drugs that caused overdoses, then strangled and dumped their bodies. If they overdosed, you don't have to strangle them. That's what I kept thinking the whole time. I mean, come on. Now, a number of other inmates witnessed a fight between Elwood and another inmate, during which he allegedly says, yes, I killed that N-word, bitch. I will fucking kill you too. What word? The N-word. What is that word? I don't know. Yeah. Nice try. Is it, it nincompoop? Yep. Nini. It's Nini. N-I-N-N-Y. I'm just trying to get you fired from this podcast. <laughs> trying to cancel you. I'm trying to cancel Arlo. <laughs> Hashtag cancel Arlo. Hashtag. Hashtag, <laughs> Hashtag cancel Arlo. <laughs> Hashtag kiss his ass. <laughs> I just, I mean, you say it now, and the next week you get, we start the show with, Hashtag. I'd like to formally apologize. <laughs> I was in the heat of the moment. <laughs> Shouldn't have said Nini. <laughs> Shouldn't have said it. Uh, so another inmate, Stephen Michael Busser, also told police that Elwood had boasted of being wanted for more than 60 murders within the state of Louisiana and had been described to him in detail one of them. Also, one of Elwood's acquaintances from a Florida jail confirmed to investigators that Elwood had once told him he enjoyed having sex with drugged persons who were completely unable to control their bodies as a result of the induced effects of drugs. So either this boy has, like, his elevator stops at a certain floor and it just doesn't keep going like most people's, or he's, like, severely twisted. Now, after his release, Elwood returned to Canton, Ohio to live with his brother, who offered him a a high-paying job. Based on Stan Hill's jailhouse testimony, the task force tracks Elwood down and re-interviews him in the presence of Ron Camden. You may be asking yourself, self, who is Ron Camden? Well, Ron Camden was a 27-year veteran of the Cincinnati Police Department's homicide unit. During interrogation, Elwood initially denied making any such statements to the inmates. But after an audio tape of Stan Hill's testimony was played, he admitted that he indeed boasted to Hill. Camden later testified that Elwood also confessed to him that he had killed a black girl whose corpse he had dumped in the canal. No recording of this confession was taken, and Elwood later denied ever confessing to such a murder to Camden. And yes, there is some fuckery afoot because Elwood would later claim that a mental illness had caused him to boast, demanding that the interrogations cease and he be allowed to return to New Orleans to see his attorney and be provided with treatment. Now, the cops bluff, or whatever you want to call it, and basically tell him, no, your ass ain't going back to New Orleans. 
Once he hears this, he confesses to killing Cheryl Lewis and Dolores Mack on February 1st through the 3rd of 1993, but refused to be audio taped, and soon after, he started denying that he had confessed it. Now, if you'll remember back to our laundry list of victims, Lewis's body would be found on February 20th, 1993, in a canal along Louisiana State Highway 3160 in Honville. On March 4th, 1998, Elwood is arrested and charged with the deaths of Cheryl Lewis and Dolores Mack. Now, remember, Mack was the victim that was found one day after Cheryl and just 782 feet from Cheryl's location. Elwood, through his lawyers, argued that he was in Ohio at the time of both killings. This is a huge point of contention in Elwood's trial. He had formerly turned over his cab receipts and all items pertaining to his job as a cabbie. It is proven that by receipts that he gave authorities that there is a mysterious two-week-long gap in February of 93. What is the cause of said gap? Hold on to your short and curlies because this one takes a turn to the dark side. Actually, it doesn't take a turn to the dark side. It's just another one of these dumbass Louisiana cops. Thank God gave them their badge. Swear to God. But anyway, so we get to Elwood's trial. The trial actually begins on June the 8th of 1999 in Lafayette, Louisiana. During the trial, a number of Elwood's former cellmates and prostitutes that he frequented testified as witnesses for the prosecution, with the cellmates claiming that he had confessed to the killings while the prostitutes claimed that he had assaulted them. Diane Gilliam, a former prostitute, told the court that she had known Elwood since the early 1990s and had dated him periodically. She testified that in 1992, during a date, Elwood, while under the influence of drugs, assaulted, beat, and strangled her into unconsciousness. Gilliam stated that she woke up to find herself in a pool of blood in an unfamiliar wooded area where a passing motorist found her by chance and sheltered her at the motel that he was staying at. She said that she did not report the incident due to being a prostitute with a criminal record. Another girl, Navasa Richmond, a former stripper and prostitute, testified that she had also been beaten and assaulted twice by a drug-crazed Elwood, during which he also attempted to strangle her. Janie Stokes, another former prostitute, told the court that she first met Elwood in either 1992 or 1993 at Snell's gas station in Marrero when he was working as a cab driver. Stokes stated Elwood bought her lunch and treated her very nicely before driving her to his home, where he suggested that they could use some cocaine. After doing a lot of drugs together, Elwood beat her, but she managed to flee. The witnesses, like Gilliam, did not report any of the incidences because they were drug addicts and prostitutes. Now, Antoinette Rainey, who worked as a drug dealer in New Orleans, also appeared as a witness for the prosecution. She would testify that Elwood was a regular customer and she told of an incident in which Elwood forced her into his car at gunpoint, then drove her to an underpass where he beat, raped, and robbed her, all while threatening to kill her during the ordeal. Rainey was able to escape, but again did not report the attack due to her criminal lifestyle. 
Three witnesses testified they had seen Elwood with Cheryl Lewis shortly before her disappearance. According to the testimony of Denise Sanders, who was Lewis's best friend, she had seen her with Elwood three days prior in his cab. Sanders also admitted to withholding this information because, again, of her drug-dealing criminal lifestyle. Another witness, Antoinette Holmes, who lived near Lewis, testified to seeing Lewis at the Time Saver restaurant in Bridge City two weeks before she was reported missing, standing between two parked cars and talking to a cab driver. She then identified Elwood as the driver to the court. Wine Wait, where, I, have, I have a really important question. What? Are we really still on this fucking episode, or do we do we move on to another one and I didn't... No, we're still on it. This is a suspect's Damn. trial. Damn. <laughs> oh, bitch. Told you, this is... New Orleans, hey, when we get a case from New Orleans, it's never simple, man. Oh, yeah. This might beat the length of the other Louisiana case. There's, <sighs> both cases from Louisiana will be our two longest. Yeah. So another witness, Juan Weir Henry, Lewis's cousin, stated that she last saw her at a hotel in Avondale with a man whom she identified as Elwood. According to her, Lewis had told Henry that she and Elwood were on their way to a suburb of New Orleans where her body was later found. Henry testified that she had not given the police this information, as you can suspect, because she was wanted for drug charges. Now, Elwood himself would deny knowing any of the victims or committing any murders, although he could not provide an alibi. Cheryl Lewis's mother, in turn, admitted that her daughter was a drug addict and a prostitute, but said that she had never seen Elwood with her daughter before. His attorneys would argue that Elwood was not even in New Orleans at the time of the two murders, claiming that he had been in Ohio with some relatives. Elwood was known for keeping extensive amounts of documents that were intricate and indicated his whereabouts but the receipts regarding his supposed presence in Ohio for the whole month of February of 93 had mysteriously disappeared. This is where we bring in the POS Sue rushing. Elwood's attorneys then filed a motion for a polygraph test to be performed on Sue rushing. Then head of the task force and that Motion was granted. So in November of 1998, Sheriff's Lieutenant Sue Rushing, the leader of the serial killer task force targeting Elwood, failed a lie detector test asking if she destroyed or lost receipts that could place Elwood in Ohio with relatives when the two 1993 murders happened. The test also indicated Rushing was, quote, not telling the truth when she denied coaching a witness who claimed Elwood showed her two bodies in a canal 20 miles west of New Orleans. The allegations were made by other task force members as well, prompting the FBI to investigate rushing and the task force and pulling themselves from the task force. One of Elwood's lawyers claims that rushing persuaded a key witness, Sharon Jones, to make up the story that Elwood took her to the canal to smoke crack and see a, quote, surprise. According to a police affidavit, Elwood showed Jones one body in the canal with an arm and hand showing and another body that was almost submerged. Elwood and his lawyers maintain he was in Ohio at the time, but say that receipts which could prove that were destroyed by rushing. 
Elwood was a meticulous record keeper. Authorities tracked his activities for years through the receipts that he willingly turned over to investigators. But the 1993 receipts seized by police have mysteriously gone missing for those two weeks in February. Elwood's lawyer, Maria Chason, theorizes that police were desperate to prove they'd captured the serial killer. Quote, they wanted to get a conviction, but whoever did this is certainly still out there. End quote. His lawyer contends that a key prosecution witness, Elwood's former girlfriend, Sharon Jones, cannot be put on the stand since the prosecution dropped the murder charge on Mac. Quote, it would be illegal to put perjurous testimony on the stand. Our allegation for months has said she was coached and given gifts in order to give that testimony. The bottom line is either their entire case is based on the testimony of a jailhouse snitch or a fabricated story. On February 24th, 1999, authorities announced they dropped one of the two murder charges against Elwood, and investigators now say he could not have committed the crime. Jefferson Parish Sheriff Harry Lee said a continuing investigation revealed that Elwood was in fact in Ohio when Dolores Mack was murdered. Somehow, on the basis of very circumstantial evidence and unreliable testimony, Elwood was found guilty of killing Cheryl Lewis and was sentenced to life in prison without parole on August 17th, 1999. He was charged with second-degree murder, and they carried a life sentence, which I find crazy in the state of Louisiana, but anyway. So we get to final thoughts, Coach's favorite part of the episode. Uh, my theories are there was an asshole that was killing people, and they were too incompetent to catch him. I like where you're going with this because one damn stakeout, they get They would have got him one damn stakeout with, with a guy in a tree and you could have seen him kill six people. <laughs> but anyway, unfortunately, since 2016, there have been zero public comments from law enforcement on whether the cases are still being investigated. The web sleuther favorite theory out there is Victor Gant. Most cite the similarities in his actual appearance and the composite sketch released by authorities along with the timeline adds up to his personal timeline and his professional police timeline. As soon as he is named as a suspect, the killing stop. He has never been charged with anything regarding any of the murders, but St. John the Baptist Parish Sheriff's Office still considers him a main suspect to this day. One of the bigger questions online is if any DNA evidence from any of the victims slash crime scenes were ever preserved. I do know that a couple of years ago, I could not find the results, but a couple of years ago, they were sending part of that chewing tobacco plug that was found at Cheryl Lewis's crime scene for enhanced DNA profiling. And the true crime enthusiasts out there on the interwebs, along with the families of the victims, are hoping that genetic genealogy could lead to an arrest and a conviction. If there is DNA evidence that has been preserved and they are sitting on it, then increased public pressure on the New Orleans Police Department might push the case to a fresh set of eyes. While the victims led, quote, high-risk lives, most were mothers to at least to at least two children. And unfortunately, we're making ends meet the only way they knew how to keep those babies fed and roof over their heads. And like I said earlier, these ladies were somebody's daughter. They were somebody's sister. They were 
somebody's mother. And for them to just be put into a filing cabinet and not thought about again is a gross injustice. I don't really know if I have a suspect. I know that after reading all of this stuff, I think that Gant probably is the better of the two. I think Elwood's crazy. I think he's mentally incompetent. Even though, and it almost sounds like, and I couldn't find this, almost sounds like he's got a touch of autism or he's on the spectrum because he has that meticulous record keeping, but the rest of his life is shit and shambles. I I really don't know how I feel about, I feel that this is a huge tragedy for the the victims and their families, but I don't know if I have a, a suspect that I really, really like. I, don't, I can't even remember a single one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I was here. And I was here for it. So, Well, let's get into uh, recommendations. Let us know, though, before we get into recommendations, let us know what your theory is on the case. If you live in Louisiana, if you happen to live in or around New Orleans and there are some newspaper articles or some periodicals out there that would shine some more light on some of these victims, please let us know, and I will, we will do them justice. But recommendation-wise, I'll let you go first. I recommend the Unsolved Mysteries, the official Unsolved Mysteries YouTube page. They got every episode on there. Sweet. Every full episode. So, Well, I'm going to recommend, once again, uh, the Skinwalker Ranch. It started back up. And they are now the first, I saw the first episode. There was a, I think it was a DOD or department of interior private jet was flying a grid search pattern over the ranch running LIDAR unbeknownst to them. While the former governor is at the table talking to them about him helping them find out what's really going on. Damn. It's a weird place. Yes, it is. But I highly recommend I that. Couldn't pay me to go there. Nope, 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 nope. If you're interested, not even in, I, but I damn sure ain't going at night. No, I ain't going at night. Hell no. If you're interested in that and have not watched the movie The Hunt for the Skinwalker with George Knapp, it is very good. I recommend it to Coach. You got anything else, brother? You definitely know I don't. <laughs> I was gonna say the only thing you got left in you is a nap. I hope I sleep tonight. If not, I'm going. If I don't sleep tonight, it'll be five nights in a row. I'm going to hospital. Like, give you some booty juice. It's getting so much worse. Man, I hate that man. I don't even know if I'm speaking English right now. You are. It's it's very fluent. You're doing quite a job. Quite a job. Quite a job. Thank God. I know. All right, ladies and gentlemen, deuces.